When you buy Kroger brand products, you feel like you're winning. That's because they offer proven quality at lower than low prices. In fact, we guarantee that you and your family will love how Kroger brand products taste. Or you get your money back. So next time you're shopping for the family, look for delicious Kroger brand products. Because they'll make you all feel like you're winning. Shop now, in-store, or online. Kroger. Fresh for everyone. From BBC Radio 4, Britain's biggest paranormal podcast is going on a road trip. I thought in that moment, oh my God, we've summoned something from this board. This is Uncanny USA. He says, somebody's in the house, and I screamed. Listen to Uncanny USA wherever you get your BBC podcasts, if you dare. Xfinity has free premium networks for everyone this month, no matter what kind of entertainment you love. Addicted to true crime? Catch killer cases and more spine-tingling shows on A&E Crime Central. Crave adventure? Explore Asian action movies on Hayah. Searching for something extreme? Check out skating, snowboarding, and more on Fuel TV Plus, the global home of action sports. And find crowd-pleasing bops on iHeartRadio's Hit Nation playlist. There's new free shows and movies to love every week. Say free this week in your Xfinity voice remote. Spectrum One is a big deal. You get Spectrum Internet with the most reliable internet speeds, free advanced Wi-Fi for enhanced security and privacy, and a free Spectrum Mobile Unlimited line with nationwide 5G included, all while saving big. For the big speed, big reliability, and big savings you want, get Spectrum One. Just $49.99 a month for 12 months. Visit Spectrum.com slash big deal for full details. Offer subject to change. Valid for qualified residential customers only. Service not available in all areas. Restrictions apply. Hi, this is Newt. Because of the coronavirus, I am currently staying at home in Rome, where my wife serves as the United States Ambassador to the Holy See. She's leading the embassy in dealing with all the different changes being brought about by the pandemic. To bring you this episode this week, I'm recording from my home, so you may notice a difference in audio quality. On this episode of Newt's World, What role did China play in the spread of COVID-19 globally? What responsibility should they bear for the devastation the virus has caused? I'm devoting a three-part series looking at China and the spread of COVID-19. First, I'll look at the origins of the virus and the timeline of the virus's spread from Wuhan to other areas of the world. And ask, what did the Chinese Communist Party know about the disease and when did they know it? In part two, I'll look at the role big data and artificial intelligence can play in tracking global pandemics or disease outbreaks anywhere in the world and make the case for why United States health authorities should be using this advanced technology to create an early warning system to hopefully prevent the spread of future pandemics. In part three, I'll discuss why China needs to be held accountable for the devastation they have caused, both in loss of lives and financial pain across the world. I'm pleased to welcome my guest, Rebecca Heinrichs, Senior Fellow at the Hudson Institute, where she specializes in nuclear deterrence and missile defense. Ms. Heinrichs recently wrote Five Lies China is Telling About the Coronavirus in the Washington Examiner. Rebecca, in the COVID-19 timeline, the first person actually contracted it that we know of is like mid-November. 
then it reoccurs in Wuhan about a month later. Is that your understanding? Yes, some of the information that we do have right now is information that only makes sense in hindsight. So the first reported incident that we know of in China did occur in November. November 17th is when we now know there was a 55-year-old resident in China who did contract the coronavirus. But at the time, obviously, we didn't know the scale of the coronavirus. In hindsight, it makes a lot of sense now that China should have been alerting more people, but we didn't know at the time. And it started to build, and China obviously knew that this thing was bad much earlier than what the rest of the world became aware of it. In December, certainly. January, absolutely. And that's why you even had Xi Jinping officially take control of China's response of the virus because they knew how big and how bad it was by mid-January. Have we resolved yet whether it came from a wet market or it came from the laboratories? We don't know that. It will be very difficult to know the origins of the virus without the Chinese government completely cooperating with the effort to get to the bottom of it. We really need to know where it came from. We shouldn't just take the Chinese government's word at face value. We need to have more information on this because that laboratory is in such close proximity to where we know the outbreak did occur. And one of the things to me that was very suspicious about the behavior of the Chinese government is by the time you had people from the WHO and members of the CDC going into China, all of the evidence that would have corroborated China's contention that it did come from the wet market had completely disappeared. So the wet market was taken down. There was no labs taken from the animals that would show that it came from this particular animal. All of that should have been kept intact if the Chinese government wanted to prove that what it was saying was true. And the absence of all of that very valuable data does raise suspicions, I think, that perhaps it came from an unintentional leak from scientific work that was being conducted at that laboratory. It's beginning to surface that the U.S. government itself had warnings in 2018 that the laboratories simply weren't competent and that there was a real danger of leakage. But I don't know of any evidence that the virus was in any way tampered with. It doesn't strike me that we know anything that would lead us to believe it was weaponized or that it came out of the level four military lab, which is also in Wuhan. I don't think that anybody is making that charge at this point. But it does get to, I think, a very serious concern about the Chinese government in that if it wants to be a participant in the global economy, Xi Jinping made this big speech in Davos in 2017 about its desire to be this global leader. And there is a great responsibility the more other countries are relying on you, especially as they're trying to pitch this Belt and Road Initiative. And so it raises a lot of questions about, is the Chinese government a reliable 
partner? And is this a country that is going to be transparent and responsible and going to heed the advice and counsel of other nations pointing out flaws and vulnerabilities in such things as these labs? And I would say that this has been a lesson for all of these countries that maybe had any doubt that the Chinese government is still an authoritarian government and is not open to correction and isn't transparent and isn't granting reciprocity and all of these things that are required for any kind of global leadership. They clearly knew by early January that they were at a minimum dealing with an epidemic, yet 40,000 people get together for the Lunar New Year celebration on January 18th. Why would the Chinese authorities have 40,000 people getting together in Wuhan when they already had for several weeks known that they were dealing with a rapidly transmitted virus. Does that strike you as strange? It does strike me as strange. The theory that makes the most sense is the Chinese Communist Party, the government in Beijing was still desperately trying to keep this a secret and trying to play down the threat. And that is what you're trying to get a handle on how bad is this thing? We know that it's bad, but do we want to draw attention to it at this point, can we still buy ourselves some time and try to handle it? I think that that might be what was going on. Obviously, I think that that judgment was very unwise. I think that it shows a lack of care and concern for the Chinese people on the part of the Chinese government. And again, if Xi Jinping was the one leading this effort, that the responsibility for that kind of decision-making is at the very top of the Chinese government. And not only did they allow that, it's like a giant potluck. You have all these Chinese families coming in and sharing meals together. Obviously very dangerous whenever there's a virus that's spreading. They don't know exactly the nature of how bad it is. So that was very unwise, very risky. And then whenever the Chinese government did start to implement very harsh quarantine of Wuhan, they had already allowed many, many people to leave there before the quarantine happened. And of course, left China's borders and went in to infect all these other countries outside China, which also just shows you how irresponsible and negligent the Chinese government was to these other countries. There are some reports that the Chinese government cut off flights from Wuhan to the rest of China, but did not cut off flights from Wuhan to the rest of the world. If that's true, I mean, it raises all sorts of weird questions. And as you know, I'm talking to you from Rome, where we have been basically shut down for about eight weeks because there are about 100,000 Chinese workers in northern Italy. And unlike Trump, who stopped the flights from China, the Italian government for a number of weeks had flights coming in directly from China, bringing people who already were infected by the virus. And so it got out of control in Northern Italy very rapidly. It makes me wonder why the authorities in China would allow flights out to the rest of the world when they already knew it was a serious enough problem in Wuhan that they cut off the flights inside China. I think that that gets to the theme that all Americans and our partners and allies should be asking is why would the Chinese Chinese government acts so irresponsibly. And by the way, I would say those are the mistakes that the Chinese government had early on 
But they continue to lie about their role in this and also in providing explanations that would make sense to the rest of us. It's a perfect example to what has been happening with our Italian allies. There's no way around it that what's happening there is directly related to Italy's over-reliance and trust of the Chinese government. And the Chinese government have a lot to answer for what has happened to the Italian population with this coronavirus. From BBC Radio 4, Britain's biggest paranormal podcast is going on a road trip. I thought in that moment, oh my God, We've summoned something from this board. This is Uncanny USA. He says, somebody's in the house, and I screamed. Listen to Uncanny USA wherever you get your BBC podcasts. If you dare. Xfinity has free premium networks for everyone this month, no matter what kind of entertainment you love. Addicted to true crime? Catch killer cases and more spine-tingling shows on A&E Crime Central. Crave adventure? Explore Asian action movies on Hayah. Searching for something extreme? Check out skating, snowboarding, and more on Fuel TV Plus, the global home of action sports. And find crowd-pleasing bops on iHeartRadio's Hit Nation playlist. There's new free shows and movies to love every week. Say free this week in your Xfinity voice remote. <sighs> Spring is a time of renewal, so why not refresh your home with a little help from Blinds.com? We make getting custom window treatments a minor project with major impact. Choose from premium blinds, shades, and shutters. We even have options for your patio, too. Blinds.com invented a better way to shop for custom window treatments. There's no pushy salespeople in your home or inflated showroom prices. Our design experts can help you find the perfect window treatments on your schedule. We'll even send free samples directly to you. Plus, we can handle the measuring and installation for you. Unlimited window treatments installed for just one low cost. And with Blinds.com, you'll always get transparent pricing. No hidden fees. Our free shipping and 100% satisfaction guarantee can put the spring back into your step. And into your home, too. Shop Blinds.com right now and save up to 45%. Up to 45% off for a limited time at Blinds.com. Blinds.com. Rules and restrictions may apply. The 2024 presidential campaign features two candidates who are very well-known to Americans. And yet, there's complexity at every turn. Criminal trials for one of those candidates. Young voters who are angry. The Campaign Moment podcast from The Washington Post gives you what matters. I'm Aaron Blake, and I'm covering my 10th election cycle. My colleagues and I have insights that you won't find anywhere else. So follow the Campaign Moment right now, wherever you're listening. On April 15th, you wrote an article, Five Lies China is Telling About Coronavirus, which was an analysis of the 30-page document of the Chinese Communist Party's version of reality. In your analysis, what are the lies that are in this Chinese document? First of all, I think that it's very telling that the Chinese government felt the need to put out what it believed should be the definitive account of the timeline. 
you can tell that the Chinese are feeling that pressure from the United States and from partners and allies about their lying. But what was in the report, the 30-page document that they issued, is essentially what you and I have already begun to discuss. So it's lies by omission and commission. They talk about when they alerted the WHO, for instance, that this was going on. And it lists on the timeline when Xi Jinping met with the head of the WHO. But it doesn't say that it had promised to allow inspectors in to China to take a look at what was going on with Wuhan. And so it wants credit for being open, but it omits the fact that it in fact took many more days for them to even allow the United States, the WHO to come in and take a look. And by the way, I would also point out President Trump has gotten quite a bit of criticism from people because of his positive rhetoric towards Xi Jinping on Twitter in January. And I noted that that conspicuously was going on when the United States was desperately trying to get American medical scientists into Wuhan. So you can see that President Trump would be trying to make sure that the rhetoric, at least, was not escalatory between the two countries because we wanted our own people in China to be able to figure out what was going on. And the reason we wanted our own people in there, obviously, is because we wanted lab work. We wanted to be able to get our hands on the sequence. We couldn't do any of that until China let us in. And then even then, as we talked about their destruction of the wet markets, we couldn't even get all the lab work that we needed, which then makes it very difficult for the United States government to know how to calibrate a national response. That was one big example. And obviously, I talk about how they didn't include the point that you made about closing down the Lunar New Year banquet, about Xi Jinping's ownership of the problem, about when they started to actually provide more information. And then the last part, which I think is huge, is it completely omits everything that they knew from their own Chinese doctors and scientists and whistleblowers and activists who very early on were some of the first people to try to sound the alarm and the Chinese government arrested them, censored them, required them to recant some of the things that they said. And in fact, that one doctor lost his life from fighting coronavirus with the patients there. And so all of that lack of transparency is part of this story that cannot be memory hold by the Chinese government. You were talking about Dr. Li Wenliang, who is really yes. the first person to publicly talk about this, gets brought in as imprisoned, forced to admit his guilt. There were eight people arrested in that period. Do you think that that was a regional decision? Or do you think by that point, it would already have gone as high as Beijing and that Beijing would have been aware that they were arresting the people who were trying to warn about the virus. Yeah. I would say just based on my general knowledge of the way that the CCP works and the tightening of control that Xi Jinping has over the entire CCP apparatus, that it is very centralized. So it would immediately go to the top, or if not immediately, very soon thereafter. And I explained to people, if you have a government that is so intrusive that it can control how many children a woman can have. That is a very intrusive government and there's very little separation between 
local operators and Beijing. This is a country that I think Americans have not fully appreciated the heaviness of the reach and the authoritarianism of the Chinese Communist Party. And remember, this is not just a one-off thing where you had one scientist or one medical doctor that was hushed or arrested. Even now, for as much as we know about how dangerous this virus is, their academic research that Chinese nationalists are trying to conduct as they pursue and trying to get to the bottom of the origins of the virus, even that is now by law in China being censored. And anything related to the origins is being censored and scrubbed. And there's a tight control of censorship coming from the government there. So there is still clearly a cover-up and an intentional effort to hide anything related to the origins and the early steps of the government with this virus. Do you think in that early phase that they thought they could get away with covering it up and it would go away? Or do you think that they were just trying to buy time? If they really didn't believe it was going to be that bad, if they thought it was going to be at worst SARS, you sort of have some sense of trying to minimize it and cover it up. But if they had any notion of how rapidly transmittable it was, this behavior is almost crazy because clearly in a matter of weeks, it's going to break out. You won't be able to hide it. What do you think Beijing had in mind in this initial phase of trying to cover it all up? Do you think that they thought they actually could contain it and maybe have it go away? I think that's a possibility in the very early stages because, again, of the decision to allow the Chinese Lunar New Year to move forward. At least that was the risk that they were willing to take, that some people might get infected, but maybe it won't crush the entire country. But I think that that decision clearly lays bare a lack of prioritization and care for the Chinese people in terms of taking that risk. But then after that, my sense is the the extreme forced quarantining of Wuhan definitely signaled to the United States, we could see something really bad was happening in Wuhan. I mean, we're talking about welding people into their homes, arresting people on the streets who weren't wearing masks or very extreme police state activity. And that kind of extreme quarantining tells me that, holy smokes, at that point, there was no question that the government knew how deadly this disease could be and obviously the economic impact that it could have. So I think by that point, it became very clear. But even now, curiously, the Chinese government is still downplaying the numbers of people who are currently infected with the virus. And because there has been another wave, because it's a novel coronavirus, it is still presenting itself and behaving in strange ways that we haven't seen before. And so it does appear like it's coming back and maybe even hitting some people who have been previously infected with the virus, hitting them again. And it would be very useful to us since China is on the front wave of this, if they could be more open and transparent with what's going on in their country and giving us access to those patients so that we can make informed decisions for our own people as we try to open up the American economy. I think it's almost certain that the Chinese are totally misleading people about the number of deaths and the number of people who currently have it because they've claimed such radical progress 
it seems to me that they'd be better off, to be honest, because they're teaching everyone to have no belief in any numbers they give us. Why do you think they find it so hard to understand that they'd be better off telling the truth? They're trying to uphold a reputation that they have things under control better than they do, that they're erroneously claiming to be this benevolent, generous world leader in supplying other nations with the protective medical gear that they need. That gear is sold to these countries that are in desperate need of it. And the only reason that China has it now is because they hoarded it early on from countries like the Australians in order to then turn around and make a profit on it. But I think that they are still trying to manage their reputation. Truth is a function of time and eventually the truth comes out. And even now, the Australian government, they're now saying we, we really need to know about the origins of the virus in China. And the Chinese government is being very obstinate and pushing back hard against the Australian government, which is not going to serve China well. And so it's not even just the United States that's having a hard time getting information. It's all these other countries who still cannot get to the bottom of this. And the Chinese government is not helping itself. It might think that this is the way to get out of this mess, but it's only digging a deeper hole for itself. I'm Katia Adler, host of The Global Story. Over the last 25 years, I've covered conflicts in the Middle East, political and economic crises in Europe, drug cartels in Mexico. Now I'm covering the stories behind the news all over the world in conversation with those who break it. Join me Monday to Friday to find out what's happening, why, and what it all means. Follow The Global Story from the BBC wherever you listen to podcasts. Xfinity has free premium networks for everyone this month, no matter what kind of entertainment you love. Addicted to true crime? Catch killer cases and more spine-tingling shows on A&E Crime Central. Crave adventure? Explore Asian action movies on Hayah. Searching for something extreme? Check out skating, snowboarding, and more on Fuel TV Plus, the global home of action sports. And find crowd-pleasing bops on iHeartRadio's Hit Nation playlist. There's new free shows and movies to love every week. Say free this week in your Xfinity voice remote. If you love sports and true crime, then there's a new podcast from executive producer Dan Patrick and hosted by me, Jay Harris, that you won't want to miss. Playing Dirty Sports Scandals. Each week, I'm squeezing the juiciest details from some of the biggest sports scandals ever. I'm talking Marcus Dixon, Olympic gymnastics, Kane Velasquez, salacious Super Bowl-level scandals. Join me on the dark side of sports by listening to Playing Dirty Sports Scandals on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. The 2024 presidential campaign features two candidates who are very well-known to Americans. And yet, there's complexity at every turn. Criminal trials for one of those candidates. Young voters who are angry. The Campaign Moment podcast from The Washington Post gives you what matters. I'm Aaron Blake, and I'm covering my 10th election cycle. My colleagues and I have insights that you won't find anywhere else. So follow the campaign moment right now, wherever you're listening. We're also seeing the face of the dictatorship 
over and over again. They, they were recently bullying the European Union. They apparently have been aggressive in almost every country. And there just seems to be something about their need to do these things. We tend as Americans to think that at the end of the day, economics will win the day, that financial interests are what is going to ultimately motivate people to be fair and open and honest. But human beings, and then, of course, by extension, regimes are much more complicated than that. And there's other factors. There's other ideologies that motivate the behaviors. And for the Chinese government, and especially under Xi Jinping, it's a Stalinist communism. As I've written and talked publicly about what is going on in China, some of the responses that I've gotten from Chinese nationalists has been full of vitriol, some of it even vaguely threatening of me, very defensive of Xi Jinping and the Chinese rise in the world. And so you can see the potent Chinese nationalism tied to Xi Jinping and Chinese communism that is very concerning and part of how they are responding to the coronavirus. And the Chinese government is not like all these other powers that the United States interacts with. There's something very different about it that makes it very problematic for handling a disaster on the scale of the coronavirus. If they had been honest about it early and allowed us in early, maybe 90 to 95 percent of the people who have died would still be alive. What do you think our response to the Chinese should be? One, we need to start as a country. We need to be very clear about our intention to make a break from reliance, obviously, from a supply chain standpoint. We've over relied on Chinese manufacturing, not just of goods generally, but of specifically of critical things that we need, masks, for instance. And that's part of the reason that I think our diplomatic response have to be a little bit careful because we still are trying to get things that we need out of China to care for the American people. So some of that needs to happen first before we can really implement the full weight of punishment, which I think punishment is not too strong of a word. There must be consequences for this kind of behavior. And so one of the ideas that I've heard is that the United States should support some of these states that are now suing the Chinese government for the medical expenses and economic loss that their citizens have suffered at the hands of the coronavirus, which the responsibility lies with China. I think that that's something that the federal government should get behind and should support. There's also sanctions, but we can't rely on the UN Security Council. Obviously, China sits on the UN Security Council and China with Russia routinely blocks what the United States tries to do at the UN Security Council. So a lot of this is going to have to be with the United States and with some of our partners who are trying to help us push back on China. But sanctions is another option. Another thing that I think is absolutely critical, the Chinese government very much cares about American student visas that we grant Chinese students. We are an open society. We love the exchange of ideas. We are a country based on ideas. We welcome all these other nationalities to come and study here. The problem is the Chinese Communist Party has massive surveillance and a long reach into what the Chinese nationals are studying here. And about 80% of all economic espionage prosecutions brought about by the U.S. Department of Justice alleged conduct that would benefit the Chinese state. And there's some nexus to the Chinese 
government about 60% of all trade secret theft cases. A lot of that has to do with their ties to academic institutions and universities. So I think we need to take a hard look at these student visas and at the investments on the part of Chinese companies. I wrote a book back in October, Trump versus China, trying to outline just how profoundly different the dictatorship is from the various American images of how it was going to evolve. And what really struck me and has been really dramatically compounded by the experience of this virus and the Chinese behavior around the virus is that we're going to have to have a very profound resetting of our entire approach to China at layers that we're not comfortable with and we're not used to because much more than the Soviet Union and the Cold War, this is a very sophisticated dictatorship. Does it occur to you that this is a bigger and harder challenge than we have thought up to now? I absolutely agree with that. The more you dig into the China problem, the more you realize just how deep the problem is. And I think even now, though, there is still an attachment to this concept of globalism and multilateralism that was so overwhelming that made these hard changes all the harder. And I think some of the impulses of President Trump and the Trump administration make some of these changes a little bit easier, but they're still very difficult. This is going to be a long effort. We're going to be in this for many, many years across administrations. It's going to require a bipartisan effort. There really needs to be a national education of our people to understand we have to buy American products. We cannot be satisfied with cheap goods made in China, that we are funding and emboldening and empowering an adversary who is desperately trying to pull away the global leadership mantle from the United States and remake the world into a China model. These are hard conversations. It's going to take a long time. And there is going to have to be some nuance to it because you can't just pull the rug out from under the relationship all at once because, as you said, how complicated the problem is and, unfortunately, how interwoven our economies still are. It's a major challenge. And I would also say President Trump, to his credit, has been focused on the China problem, but he's been narrowly focused on the trade problem. And he's allowed the State Department and the Department of Defense to handle some of the other pieces because of coronavirus. Now is the time for him to really explain it to the American people. He needs to lay out the nature of the kind of competition that we are in with the Chinese Communist Party, how it's affecting the entire government and not just in this tiny component of trade. And I would be remiss if I didn't point out, not only is this going to require multiple administrations and Republican and Democratic bipartisanship, it's also going to require the help of our allies and partners. You're talking about just the behemoth that is the Chinese government. They have been very patiently, but intentionally working to get all these other partners and allies that the United States has had for so many years under their own thumb and trying to pull them into their orbit. And so we need to be very intentional about making sure that those countries that share our values and share our vision for what a peaceful order would look like in which nations that are sovereign have their sovereignty protected and aren't threatened simply because they have weaker militaries. We need to make sure that we are getting behind countries like Australia and Japan and the Vietnamese who are pushing back against Chinese military. 
And we need to get behind Taiwan, who is being very clear about the difference between a democratic society versus the authoritarian nature of the Chinese Communist Party. I couldn't agree more. Well, listen, I want to thank you. I think you're one of the pioneers who's going to help us think this through and help us find a solution. And I really appreciate your taking the time. Thank you so much. And please do stay well. Thank you to my guest, Rebecca Heinrichs. You can read Ms. Heinrichs' article and learn more about China and the early spread of COVID-19 from Wuhan to other areas of the world on our show page at newtsworld.com. Newt's World is produced by Gingrich 360 and iHeartMedia. Our executive producer is Debbie Myers, and our producer is Garnsey Sloan. The artwork for the show was created by Steve Pendley. Special thanks to the team at Gingrich 360. Please email me with your comments at newt at newtsworld.com. If you've been enjoying Newt's World, I hope you'll go to Apple Podcasts and both rate us with five stars and give us a review so others can learn what it's all about. On the next episode of Newt's World, our China COVID-19 series continues with part two. I'll look at the role big data and artificial intelligence can play in tracking global pandemics and make the case for why United States health authorities should be using this advanced technology to create an early warning system to hopefully prevent the spread of future pandemics. I'm Newt Gingrich. This is Newt's World. From BBC Radio 4, Britain's biggest paranormal podcast is going on a road trip. I thought in that moment, oh my God, we've summoned something from this board. This is Uncanny USA. He says, somebody's in the house, and I screamed. Listen to Uncanny USA wherever you get your BBC podcasts. If you dare. Xfinity has free premium networks for everyone this month, no matter what kind of entertainment you love. Addicted to true crime? Catch killer cases and more spine-tingling shows on A&E Crime Central. Crave adventure? Explore Asian action movies on Hayah. Searching for something extreme? Check out skating, snowboarding, and more on Fuel TV Plus, the global home of action sports. And find crowd-pleasing bops on iHeartRadio's Hit Nation playlist. There's new free shows and movies to love every week. Say free this week in your Xfinity voice remote. If you love sports and true crime, then there's a new podcast from executive producer Dan Patrick and hosted by me, Jay Harris, that you won't want to miss. Playing Dirty Sports Scandals. Each week, I'm squeezing the juiciest details from some of the biggest sports scandals ever. I'm talking Marcus Dixon, Olympic gymnastics, Kane Velasquez, salacious Super Bowl-level scandals. Join me on the dark side of sports by listening to Playing Dirty Sports Scandals on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. 
Hannah Storm and my new podcast, NBA DNA with Hannah Storm, chronicles my six decades in professional basketball, from growing up in the sport to becoming one of sports TV's first female broadcasters. Join me as I dig deep into the game's history, unearth some wild stories, and talk to my friends from the world of basketball, from Dr. J to Charles Barkley. It's been a wild ride, and now I get to take you with me. Listen to NBA DNA with Hannah Storm on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts.